0: G'day, you're listening to the Big Breakdown podcast with Chris Stafford and Harrison Marshall. Take it away, fellas. Hello and welcome to episode three of the Big Breakdown podcast. Uh, I hope you're all well. Uh, just a reminder that you can uh, follow the discussions that we're having on our Facebook, Instagram, uh, and Twitter at Big Breakdown HQ, uh, where you can join in the conversation and um, let us know your thoughts on on how we're doing. Really, putting ourselves out there. Let's uh, <laughs> let's get some feedback and see see how it goes. Um, Harrison, how are you? How's uh, lockdown going? Have you? Um, Progressed on from tray bakes and day drinking, or uh,
1: just about. I think just about. I've um I've calmed down, calmed down massively on the day drinking. Um, the tray bakes I think are in a more advanced stage now. I've decided to to break into cookies, um, which you know keeping the flatmates and the, and the housemates happy. Um, yeah, it's it's, it's all good. It's all good. How have you found Have you found the last week?
0: It's been alright. I was a bit, bit bit pushed outside my comfort zone uh, last week teaching. Um, that's another story. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I, I've st- started teaching on a new module uh, to, to some of the first years and uh, week two I had to demo gymnastics on how to teach gymnastics via Microsoft Teams uh, in my conservatory. So um, yeah, that was uh, that was interesting. There's some video footage somewhere of me trying to do a headstand up against my sofa, which you know, I'm surprised I've not broke my neck, but I've manned. That's...
1: I think we'll, um, we'll, we'll link that in the bio, won't we?
0: Uh, no, that, that's going to be very much destroyed, never to be seen again. Uh, size of this head, shouldn't be able to balance on it. Um, anyway, I suppose we should really move on to, to the episode. We've got um, another guest this week. Uh, we've got Stuart Dixon from the Yorkshire Rugby Academy. Uh, Stuart has worked in rugby for over 15 years, uh, the last eight years specifically working within player development. Um, he was fortunate to be a full-time player for five seasons. Played some international A-grade. He's married twice, divorced once, three kids, and currently, as of yesterday, has an adoptive child on the way. Uh, Stuart, how are you? Tired, I, I assume.
2: Yeah, it's been uh, well. Firstly, thanks for having me on. Um, as with all plans, you, you make good good intentions, uh, and then as things approach, you get a few roadblocks. Those those are the best bits. But yeah, we um, we managed to bring a little girl home yesterday from hospital so we're, we're currently going through the foster to adopt process so me and my wife um she inherited my three from my my first practice marriage as I like to call it um lots of lessons you win all you learn right so we uh, so we had three already um and yeah we got to bring her on last night so it's all fairly new to 50% of the relationship put it that way
0: well, uh, good luck with all. Uh, mad for wanting to do it again, but fair play to uh, to to. to, to I've got no more hair left to lose. So. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, so just 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 so the listeners can get an idea of sort of your your back If you just give us sort of a, an overview of your playing and coaching, um, just
2: what got you started, really? I suppose. Yeah. So I guess like a. a a lot of kids who get introduced to the sport it was something completely new and alien to me so I'd always played football growing up um enjoyed that and then sort of changed schools went to upper school where they, they played this kind of weird sport where you sort of rang around banging people and generally having fun I thought this, this is interesting and uh had a bit of ability I guess um so I sort of enjoyed that playing through school and luckily enough because I went to a certain type of school I guess back in those days um Managed to get onto some of the age grade stuff, played some county pieces. And luckily, um before science and common sense took over, I managed to play for England 16s. So as an early developer right up my alley, um, got selected. And and then, like a lot of early developers, found a little bit of trouble sometimes through my eighteens, um, where most people caught me up and then sort of plowed through that and managed to get back into England in the 20s. So that's essentially what what opened the door to play some some full-time rugby. Uh, so I played for a couple of years at Wakefield when, when they existed. Um I hasten to add I had nothing to do with that downfall. They continued a couple of years after I left. Um and then luckily got uh a contract with Rotherham when they first got promoted into the premiership. So I know that uh, some of our mutual friends, Russ Earnshaw, is um is adamant there's a there's a book around the uh, the glory years of Rotherham in and around the premiership. So I'll probably leave some of those stories for for that. But uh, yeah, amazing times—sort of five years as a professional.
1: There's probably a lot um, of them
2: stories that aren't safe to air as well, to Let's be honest. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it depends—you know, what your audience is. Maybe you have to do a radio edit of this one and uh, put one on after after midnight. But no, it was, it was class times. I mean, it's you know, it's a great story, um, and to be part of that for for a few years was brilliant. And then I picked up an injury when they got re-promoted, which meant they kind of didn't want to take the gamble of keeping me on. Um so like a, again, a lot of players from full time get to that T junction as what do I do next? So I could I guess have chased a few contracts in around the championship and sort of moved the family around the country every year, but uh decided to go back to my junior club at Braffn and Bingley. Um and again we had some good times, had a, a bit of success on the pitch, we assembled a decent squad for that level. Um and got kind of all the way back to National 1, which is when I started coaching. And when I say coaching, I was essentially told by the then head coach that uh, all the budget had gone. um, So would I mind running in the backs on a Tuesday, Thursday night, is how he sort of put it. Um, And it definitely wasn't coaching. I was delivering somebody else's lesson plan. And there was a lot of command, control, tell. um, This is what I want to do. That's wrong, do it again. Uh, So, yeah, I think... I know Stu Armstrong sometimes refers to his early coaching as the uh, wilderness years, and I definitely resonate with that a little bit, that um, in around, what would it have been, 2008 when I first started, didn't have much of a clue. But um, luckily, a bit like yourself, we uh, managed to practice a little bit on unsuspecting school kids around the central Yorkshire area um, and worked with some coaches, which is when I was working with the RFU as a community coach. And again, that's just... It just gives you different insights. So you're working in loads of different environments. You're trying different stuff. Um, yeah, and you just you kind of learn as you go along. Unfortunately, if if I coached you between I reckon two thousand and eight uh, and Monday just gone, you've probably had a fairly average experience. But I'll get better next week.
1: <laughs> and um, just just on Is that, that brief how, enough? how much did the um the, that professional experience in the in those glory days at Rotherham? How how much did they kind of Know, impact your, your, your coaching philosophy and, and ideas when you did when you did make that transition
2: yeah it's it's interesting like when you reflect back I guess now and I know that some of the guys that played me back then who were still coaching um, feel the same that it was such a different time I, I almost kind of I don't refer to it as professional rugby we, we kind of we got paid to play <laughs> um, because it was still in its infancy it was like five years old as a sport and probably leaning quite a lot on rugby league type stuff in terms of training methods. Um, I don't think there was much uh, foresight around planning and periodization and tapering and things like that. It was essentially you paid full time. Let's get as much as we can out of you from nine till five during the week and then send you out on a Saturday afternoon to, to bash the hell out of each other and then fix what went wrong. You know, there's kind of no long-term plan. Let's just fix what went wrong on the Monday morning. Um, bash each other during the week uh, and then go again. So it's in terms of things I look back on, I guess like any coach who starts, you you sort of resonate with the people who you had connections with and you kind of think, I want to be more like them because they made me feel good about rugby and sort of maybe steer away from some of the mind-numbing, hour-long defensive drills um, that we had to put ourselves through. And it's funny that I've yet to come across a team that is made of Uh, yellow plastic coated foam on a weekend that doesn't really move but I tell you what there's I've never been sidestepped by a tackle sausage yet so I'm 100% on that um so yeah so it's kind of I don't know it's sort of weird really I think as you as you progress through um and then coaching at different levels it gives you that that mindset of I guess at the premiership level it's a job and everybody to an extent can can accomplish certain things so there's an expectation that you don't have to refine loads of techniques. It's, you know, just go out there and do it. Whereas when you're coaching, I know you guys coached at Enzians and when I was at, at B's and stuff, you've got guys in the second team who probably just want to play rugby for a bit of fun and they come training to make sure that, you know, they don't necessarily keel over on a weekend. Um, and they don't really want to get better. They just want to have a little bit of fun, run around, play a bit of touch and play on a Saturday afternoon. And then you've got the younger aspiring kids who probably – Need that input so that they can move from engines or bees and move up through the leagues to, to where their potential lies. So it's for me, that's probably more challenging than the higher up you you coach, if I'm honest.
0: Well, I suppose that, that I mean, one thing you've sort of missed out on your your background because your recent experience coaching the the women's prem. So obviously you've you how did you find that? What, what was the, how have you how did you find that with with covid restrictions and, and everything else? What impact did that have?
2: Yeah. So again, without, um, this could be a seven hour long podcast. We might have to do it in like Lord of the Rings type (laughs) stuff. Um, the the context behind it was the Yorkshire Carnegie Academy as it was, had had ceased to exist, um, in July. So I found myself looking for employment. Um, and the Mountain Park Sharks role had initially been advertised as a full-time role. Um, but for a variety of reasons, it became part-time. So it was something that interested me in terms of coaching a brand new environment that I'd never been involved with, um, with coaching women that I'd never really done. You know, I'd done the odd session here and there, but full-time as a coach of a group of women. Um, so it seemed to work really well. And then getting your head around – so when I went in in August, we were still kind of in stage A on, on the roadmap, so small group skills um, – socially distant and everything. And I've not coached on pitch probably since the March due to COVID. And then I was kind of trying to get my head around all these new restrictions and how we do that. And um, we then got told in September that we could move to stage two as it was then. So that was a sort of return to contact and return to play protocol. So essentially our pre-season was six weeks of Tuesday, Thursday um, under very strict contact guidelines about how much you could do um to prevent the spread and i guess that for me is probably where because the girls are fantastic you know they're keen to learn and i would definitely recommend if anybody wanted to challenge themselves it'd be to work with a group of of girls or women because what they will do and i guess we'll talk about this later is they'll challenge your why you know if you don't know why you want them to do something you're going to get found out because they're like well why do i need to do it like this and you've got to kind of go well because of Whatever.
0: 100. When I, I mean, when I first moved to work with you in Central, I was I started helping um, Dave Duxbury out at, at Leeds Beckett with the ladies there, or at Leeds Met as it was then. And you know, we had um, Emily Scarlett Fleet playing there, and and you know, they they were in the England sort of set up there, but they were quite happy to well as well listen to little old me who was very still new to coaching, which I think says a lot about them as as people that they still valued what I had to say. But then they also weren't afraid to just go, well, Why are we doing this? I found that made me a lot better because I had to make sure I had to preempt what they were going to challenge me on that I had the answers for. I I think that made me a a, a better coach.
2: Yeah, and I think um, I was... And and people talk about, like, leadership and and showing vulnerability. And I didn't have any choice because I was like, this is new to me. And there'll be times when I get it wrong. So, like, in the first, first few weeks, I mean, crikey, we've got girls who are just left left home for the first time, freshers at university, um, playing their first ever game of senior rugby away at Harlequins. And uh, like if you look back at the video, I mean, the, you could argue quite rightly that there may be some welfare issues because our girls had maybe done a combined total of 90 minutes of contact prep in that six-week block. And they're going up against seven internationals who probably... That pre-season for them was what they needed, a bit of rest to freshen up, but they'd had all that years of experience around contact. They absolutely smashed into us. And, and the girls loved it. It was a real eye-opener for them. And, and don't get me wrong, you know, losing by 100 points in your first ever game as a senior coach in the AP15s is pretty humbling. But um, you kind of just go, well, that's, that's where we're at. And if you've got a long-term plan, which you know the the guys have got a three year plan up at Maud and it's you can't just change after week one. You know you're not going to get your 18 year old hooker becomes a 26 year old hooker with 70 70 uh, odd games. You've got to work with it. So we really quickly just help the girls understand what success could look like to them. Um, and I don't know if you listen to the the high performance uh, podcast. It's a rival podcast, nowhere near as good as this one. I hasten to add, but with uh, Jake Humphreys and he had Clive Woodward on and he talked about, and I know this is a massive tangent, but he said, you know, I'm a six handicap golfer. So I'm not trying to be somebody who can beat Rory McElroy and Dustin Johnson. I'm trying to be the best six handicap golfer I can be. Um, so what does success look like and what does improvement look like for that person? So when you're working with a group of girls who, between them, have maybe played 25 senior games of rugby, you're not looking to knock Saracens and Harlequins off the top of the league. You're looking, well, what gets us to second bottom? What, what, you know, if we concede 100 points, what does success look like next week? So, um, and that, that's tough for them to get their head round because, you know, it's it's a performance league and results do count. But at the same time, you've got to just keep them mindful that they're on a pathway potentially to red roses. You know, they're 18 and they're just starting out. And actually, getting more game exposure than a lot of their peers would be in other clubs because they do have the 26-year-old with experience. They do have the international. So, I suppose that is
0: the thing—is that is a pathway through to to the Red Rose, isn't it? That's that's what the the, the focus of the league is—is is to develop that platform yeah. and convey about of, of players coming through. So, um, so even then, working the Premiership, you were still working in this this player development environment. Um, I think that sort of brings us to the question that's on everyone's lips at the moment, Dicko is what is going on with the yorkshire rugby academy because there has been a lot of um, you know people at the moment there's been a lot of stuff in the press about what was happening with with obviously Carnegie beforehand and the academy yeah. sort of being quite quiet and then the pandemics obviously took over as well so i think it's a good opportunity now for you to just what 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 what's going on and, and if you have once if you have been operating, operating how have you managed to do that during the pandemic as well
1: yeah
2: so let's i guess start from where it began. So when, when when Carnegie unfortunately hit some pretty tough times and, and they indicated that they wouldn't be able to support the academy moving forward we kind of entered this period of trying to look at what a different model could look like um, so for some of the viewers and listeners who might not understand the model so there's 14 regional academies in England of which we were one um, and essentially each academy is hosted by a parent club so you likes of Leicester Tigers, Sail Sharks Wasps etc. So when Yorkshire when Carnegie indicated they could no longer fulfill their license agreement stuff, we were, you know, we were faced with, well, what, what next? Um, and unfortunately, in the kind of perfect storm, the pandemic landed right in the middle of all those conversations. So the potential partner that we'd uh, gone quite a long way down the road with in terms of taking over, not so much as a parent club, but as the you know, significant other investor to the RFU, um, they kind of had to put the, the kibosh on that because they didn't know from a business point of view where they would be um, at the back end of the pandemic. So, yeah, so we unfortunately, the Academy closed at the end of July 2020, um, resulting in the six of us sort of being made redundant. And whilst it's disappointing, you kind of understand it because, you know, Carnegie, they're a business, um, they're not a charity and there's no money coming in. So fast forward to the back end of September 2020 and um, there was a, a model brought out where vastly reduced but essentially a model brought out so the Yorkshire Rugby Academy was born let's make sure we keep using that terminology we're not Sail Sharks West or Newcastle Falcons South or anything that other people have talked about we're definitely not um, Leeds Tykes Academy we are Yorkshire Rugby Academy so the model we've got now is it's a lot more streamlined than the other academies. So we run up to and include in under 18s. So we don't have anything post 18 like the other academies do. Um, and essentially in terms of the pandemic, it's, it's sort of perversely, I'll try and get my words out, perversely made things um, a little bit easier because there's only the under 18s currently are allowed to operate under the elite exemption. So for me, in terms of running the programme as the lead, I've only got to find a group of coaches for one group. I've only got to find facilities for one group. Um, so it's it's actually been, if anything, whilst it's still difficult and you've still got to be mindful of all the protocols, it's actually been fairly easy just to get my finger to the table and start to get my head around everything because we still we still will get audited by the RFU, so there's still certain benchmarks we have to hit. But if I'd had to do that for the under-18s, the under-16s, and, and below that with Alex as... Um, I guess my sidekick in terms of the DPP, you know, that's another 750 kids below there that we're trying to provide for. Um, so it's allowed us a little bit of breathing space. We've got rugby back up and running, and people now in Yorkshire understand their pathway and what it looks like beyond 18. Um, but at the same time, we've just not been overwhelmed with the amount of stuff we have to deliver. <laughs>
1: So, so, so with that, you know, over the last, you know, the first two episodes, we we kind of touched on, you know, trying to understand, you know, who we're coaching. Um, you know, yeah. I think that's, um, you know, we had a good episode last week with um with Christian Sharples from Bareface Conditioning. Um, so for you, in terms of uh, an academy, uh, you know, academy lead, what do you think are the key differences between, you know, understanding the who and the different age grades um, coming up, and actually, um, what are you expecting to see from see from them as athletes?
2: Yeah, it's, it's a really good question, and I think there's there's probably some misguided perceptions out in the wider world as to you know what a potential academy athlete is a good word to to use looks like because I think maybe people just think there's loads of little mini Oren Farrells running around who never make mistakes, they're already physically ready to play the game of rugby, they you know the mindset's right and all this kind of stuff, and nothing really could be further from the truth. It's um, certainly the DPP so the entry point at under 14 um, you know we might discuss a little bit later on some of the the kind of acronyms we put alongside our stuff but it's essentially we would coach around the principles of rugby um, so nothing changes and that, and that would be the key for me when we're talking to coaches parents teachers it's the principles of rugby will never change whether you introduce under sevens tag right through to the premiership there's certain you know principles that the game is built on that you need to be able to achieve to succeed. So things like go forward, things like continuity and contest of possession, and it's it's a guess what method you use at what age is is the differentiating factor. So we would definitely build on um, those principles within DPP, for example, but it allows us to break things down. Where you know I get coaching in the community game is tough because. Each week, you're a performance coach. I mean, people talk about performance coaches being, you know, Alex Sanderson at Sale or you know, <laughs> Lee Blackett at Wasps. You think about the guy that's coaching the under-12s on a weekend, and every single spectator thinks they could do a better job. You know, that's that's performance coaching each week, and he's doing the right thing by the kids, giving everybody game time and changing positions because he understands late specialisation. And yet, there's parents on the touchline going, "My lads are 10. Why are you playing them at 10?" and Why did you bring him off? We lost a game because you brought him off. I mean, that's like proper pressure, right? (laughs) The other stuff's easy. Um, So anything we can do to kind of support them and just say, look, these are why we build our sessions like we do, because it's allowing the players really more than anything just to explore what they can do. Um, You know, I know Brian Ashton talks about it. We would never want to see a perfect session. If you leave a DPP or an academy session, you've not made a mistake We've we've not stretched you first and foremost, but you've probably not stretched yourself in that session.
1: I think I think that's quite a good point. You know, in terms of creating those you know those learning moments for for you know for, for the players to, to to basically learn and, and thrive um, within those sessions. Um, you know, I think you have raised some good points in terms of trying to tailor it to you know to different to different age grades. Um, so when it you know uh, you know with with the nature of academies, when it comes to the, the under eighteen, you know that selection process. Um, you know, it, it's gonna have some sort of cutthroat element to it because you know we can't, you know, you, you can't be a charity and offer and offer everyone a place. It's it's not the Oprah Winfrey show. Um so what kind of what kind of key characteristics are you kind of looking for at that level for you know for those for those players
2: Yeah, I'm loving the Oprah reference, by the way. <laughs> uh, right. The um I think that, and if I look at this year in isolation, because it is different, so we're definitely working with a smaller number. Um, so we've currently got 35 lads across 17s and 18s. Um, you know, so that's that's had unfortunately some real tough conversations because generally speaking, we'd probably take a good number of the lower age group because we can work with them for two years. But this year, kind of more than any other year, we've we've got more uh, under 18s probably it's normally near fifty fifty, and this year it's probably more seventy thirty, um, because it's a massive year for them. They've not experienced much rugby in nearly twelve months, and they're making decisions on next steps, university wise, and and potentially other academy areas are interested in you know where you're coming to study. You know, I mean, Chris at Leeds Beckett would be doing some um, you know research about players coming in now, so trying to get a, an eye on who's coming in. So if If we're not given the opportunity to express themselves, which I guess the knock on effect is we're almost, I don't don't want to call it sort of shortening the chain, but it's we need them to get to as close to a finishing point as we can in the under 18s. Um, A lot of the other academies would still at 18 pick on potential for their senior academy. Um, And we certainly would have done in the past at Carnegie, maybe had a real spotlight on sort of mindset and attitude. Because the other stuff you can develop, you can develop physical potential, you can develop uh, technical skills, you know, over those two years. But if, if for example, 18, you're not good at receiving feedback or you're not displaying great levels of self-awareness, that's going to be the limiting factor, um, you know. So there's a there's lot of stuff there. So we've got, we've got a good ground. I mean, listen, it's as level of playing the field as it probably can be at that age. Most people have gone through puberty. Um Unfortunately, there'll be, there'll be some that are keener at young ages who are probably physically ahead of some of their counterparts. Um, and kind of as of right now, they would probably be involved in the squad. Um, and some lads, hopefully, you know, one of our success criteria is that they carry on playing at the university and they don't fall off that cliff edge um, because they, they will need that time to develop. It's just the academy league isn't the right opportunity right now for them.
0: I think with, with rugby, it is very much a late specialism. Types, sport. Yeah. A lot of players do come through. Even I mean, we've had some lads come through 20 that have broke into Booksy rugby, for example. And you know, one of the one of the one of the examples I've got from when, when I was just coaching at West Park was was a prop kind of what kind of ward. He'd only played for a couple of years at Bailden, Um and then he played a season for us at West Park and then went off to, to Harrogate. He then went up to Mardo Park to National One and then he went back to, to Harrogate before doing his knee. But he was just physically stronger than everyone else but he could also play a little bit and it took a while for him to actually have that come through and if he came through early you know he probably would have been a um probably would have gone on to something a, a, a bit more and, and I think that is something to remember that co- the coach needs to really try and remember is that players develop at different rates so you know someone might might get there a little bit later than than, than the other person
2: It's interesting because we've spoke about the who, haven't we? And um, So there's a couple of examples that I used recently on a a school webinar. So we looked at somebody like Jack Walker, who, under 13, because back then when we didn't know any different, that's when we started selecting into the the schools of rugby. So back when we knew everything, we selected the best 30 under 13s in Yorkshire um, to work with, because that's clever. Um, But Jack would have come in then. Uh, and had a fairly linear progression. So, from the schools of rugby as it was then into the uh, play development group within the academy, he then pushed through the under 18s and actually captained the first team at 18 years old at George uh, Carnegie. Then he went off and he was part of that uh, World Cup winning team of the under 20s. And then from there, kind of went on to Bath. So, he, he probably didn't hit his roadblock until he actually got into that environment at Bath because everything else was really easy. So, you the way you would coach Jack would be massively different to the way you probably would have coached Connor. Cause if you'd have come across Connor as a 19, 20 year old, he's missed all that kind of training age stuff. So you have to view him through a lens of maybe as a 16, 17 year old. And, and my argument would be that the senior coaches don't either have the toolkit or don't have the desire to, to put that stuff in. They want the finished article. So they would see Connor at a 20 year old who maybe can't catch and pass as well as his peer group and just go, well, he's just a big, useless lump. But if they invested a bit of time, you know, he kind of did it the old-fashioned way, probably similar to my journey, where he took incremental steps to reach his potential. Whereas, actually, with the right environment, you know, he could have pushed on, got on his knows where, if it had got, somebody said, this is a 16-year-old prop rather than a 20-year-old prop that we've come across. What would we do in that situation? And there'd be some building blocks physically, there'd be some tech tax stuff that we'd have to pick up on. And if you had that mindset of, that's fine, there's going to be some stuff he struggles with in, in the first-team environment. you know. So that's it's interesting. So when we talk about the who, I think knowing as much as you can about the people in front of you is key. So for us, it's easy. We know which schools are at. We know kind of probably what their rugby programme looks like. So if we were selecting, so coming back to some of the stuff that Harrison was talking about, we've got an under-17 state school kid who's displaying at the moment the same kind of physical skills as an under-18 independent school kid who gets maybe six, seven hours of rugby a week. Well, who would you invest time in? You've got a kid who does it for one half term and plays a bit of club rugby, or essentially somebody who's could be operating a half-million-pound rugby programme in school some of them these days. So, of course, we would say, well, let's take this kid. And then people don't, don't understand why. And you go, well, this is like, you, you think about the... Without getting too academic, Kev Till and Joe Baker stuff around future potential against current performance, but well, which kid potentially has got further to go in terms of their potential? So that's why we would, um, you know, probably invest a lot more in those those state school kids. If, but to get there is the difficult thing. So how do we find more of them?
1: And I think I think those I think. That philosophy and the ideology has changed from you know just going around to the you know to those publics, the private schools, and picking their best players. That actually, you know, these state schools are actually becoming a bit of a goldmine for you know finding those you know those future talents. And it goes back to you know a conversation what Chris and I spoke with on the first podcast about you know starting with that end in mind. You know, so if we can think about you know where these where are these players going to get to now, what can we as coaches and the environment that we create. How you know how beneficial is it going to be for that player in terms of their in terms of their progression? So, you know, I think it's you know it's good that you know you guys at the you know the Yorkshire Rugby Academy are you know are picking up on that, and it's you know I think it's a refreshing refreshing take on it.
0: Because even the people that you speak to at the clubs, they still assume that a lot of these programs are what of blazer you're wearing. For, yeah. for schools, aren't there that? That is the perception, but it's not the actual case because we know, even from when our role as the RFU, Dick or the We, you, you goldmine schools like uh, Redillion Academy, who are really using the values of rugby to support the overall objectives of the school with with what rugby brings around teamwork, respect, enjoyment, discipline, and sportsmanship, and because of the nature of where they are, some of the players that come through there have got the potential to to go on. That, but they need the skills more fine tuning, but they've got a lot of uh, other stuff that we look for as a part of that.
2: Yeah, and I think um, a key bit of what you mentioned there is is how we support those stakeholders to understand stuff. So I think my favourite ever example is is Pete Lucock, who's been a real good quality professional rugby player in and around the championships. So he's currently at, at Donny Knights. I think he's actually gone up to the Falcons. Um, you know and. I got a phone call from his school teacher where I was, I was running an after-school club. We're doing year sevens, trying to get them enthusiastic about rugby for the emerging school stuff that we all used to run. And he just said, I've, I've got this kid in year 10 and he's just got something about him. I don't know what it is. So when you come down after school, can we sort of swap over halfway through and you can just have a look at him because I think he's got a little bit, but I'm not sure what to look for. So we did this and kind of covertly swapped over. I wander across to watch this kid in action. And the, the first thing that I see is he tackles a kid in breaks. He's like, complete accident, complete accident. So it's like, session's over. This poor kid's waiting for an ambulance. Um, and he's like, well, what do you think? I was, well, I don't know what to do. <laughs> because I've seen him make one tackle, have an accident. So we, we used to run the district program, if you remember, back in the day. So I guess a forerunner to what DPP is now. Um, and I said, look, we've got this thing at the weekend where the districts are playing against each other. Let's just bring him along and just see what you know what it goes like. Just like a bit of a no-pressure trial. So we, as all coaches do, stuck the new kid on the wing where he can't cause too much damage. Um, and he kind of looked all right, went well. So the next time we had one, he sort of moved in a little bit and he just pushed through. But it's, it's – um, without those teachers kind of going, I've, he's got something about him. I don't know what it is, but can you have a look? So we need to support them so that when the entry points are open for DPP – We do get more of those kind of golden nuggets rather than the kid who's probably played rugby at independent school for five five hours a week from maybe year five or six. So they will display at an early age more technical proficiency, Um, but they may also display a real lack of resilience in terms of receiving feedback or um, instruction.
0: I suppose that sort of comes on to the the next question. It, it's very much a development of, of, of what Harrison started off talking about. It is is when you're looking the not necessarily trials, but when you're out because I know you you want to go out when rugby restarts and start watching people on a, on, a, on a, in in games. We spoke about before is the the star model which you use around your sort of process of, of looking at players if you it'd be really useful I think if you could just go through that as a, as a process just so that the coaches listening just get an idea of what what they can start sort of looking at as well I suppose.
2: Yeah so it's a really good point so right back at the very start we spoke about how we coach on the principles of rugby um, so that kind of underpins everything and, and every academy every club school would would coach along that and then I guess I always use the analogy of making chicken curry. So every academy is kind of making a chicken curry, but just like in India or or Goa, there's slightly different slants on that. So we use the the STAR acronym and there's other models out there. So there's a Sail Sharks DNA, there's the GASP model from Falcons. And it's I guess it's just a a way of trying to articulate what kind of attributes we'd look for. So in terms of our STAR model, um, the S stands for skillful. And, you know, we we kind of frame that around their ability to catch, pass, tackle under varying levels of pressure. Um, So have they got some skills? T is tactically aware. So what's what's their level of game understanding like? So you'll know as well as I do, the kind of early developers potentially don't have that because they don't need it currently. They're not stretched. So physically, they dominate their opposition. So they might miss an overlap, but it doesn't matter because they'll get go forward and they'll, so, so it's, it's interesting when those time kind of players come to us and our feedback to them is that, yeah, great, physically good, but um, tactically they don't really understand the game. So they would have bags of the A, which is athletic potential. So the early developer at 14, 15 years old, who's six foot three and kind of reach, you know, peak height, velocity, whatever, you know, that kind of stuff. That um, they, they kind of look ahead of their peers, but have they, have they got the other stuff? And I I think really at the early ages and you referenced it before about these kind of kids from the state schools is the resilience piece. So when things go wrong, do they bounce back up and have another go? Do they ask good questions? Are they curious? So just like the women, do they ask sort of why you're doing something so it helps them understand Do they respond to feedback and then you see a measured improvement. So we want kids to fail and we spoke about that before, but what we want them to do is, is fail better next time. So if they keep making the same mistake, then they're probably not showing the resilience or the understanding to progress. But if they kind of go, well, this is a similar picture to what I've seen and I made this decision last time that didn't work, so I'll try something else. And if that doesn't work, it's like, what's another option? So I think in the early early stages, we definitely prioritise around the skills and the resilience piece because we know full well in a group of a, crikey, every age group, we probably get two to 250 nominations. um, Because every club's, got 15 potential professional players in their midst and uh, so they send all 15 including all three scrum halves because they've all got what it takes
1: <laughs> um, the head coach's children
2: <laughs> yeah I mean you went there you went there I, I couldn't possibly comment but, um, but it, you know that in itself poses a problem because we definitely then will miss some of the right kids because they just get lost You know, well, and, on- and we do all suffer from that confirmation bias go on Chris sorry
0: no, 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 I, I think you, you touch on a really good point. I mean, you spoke about this a lot over the years about you know the amount of people that do end up getting sort of nominated for these things. So what advice would you give to a coach or a, a, a teacher that's that gets this nomination form? What advice mm. would you give them when it comes to actually the players that they're nominating?
2: Yes, it's again, it's a real good point. So um, I'll give a really long answer and just try to stay with me, but... <laughs> A lot of the clubs, so so let's say for example, we we operate kind of like a two plus one nomination. So you can nominate two kids, and then we give them a kind of a plus one nomination for that front five forward. That sometimes, you know, like we spoke about Connor Ward, it, you know, physically maybe not there. They're probably carrying a bit of extra weight, or because of their position, don't often get their hands on the ball. Their job in life is to move from rook to rook to rook to allow the good players to um, get the ball and do stuff with. So we give a club a kind of a plus one nomination purely on the kind of athletic potential. So if, you know, we've got, we've got one, one in under seventeen who, um, Craig is, you know, he's he's tall enough to play premiership second row now, but his, his rugby program would be once a week at club. Um, there's no rugby provision in his school. So we're kind of going, well, the athletic potential is there for him. What he needs is all the other stuff bundling around it. Um, so we give them that opportunity. And, and what we would do, eh? and I think teachers have it uh, in terms of a skill set, they, they understand what's gone before. So if you ask them to benchmark where their current year nines are, they've got all that experience of what's gone through before. So if they see Chris Stafford in year nine, and they can say, crikey, he's like Harrison's being in DPP is a year 10, and Chris is miles ahead of where he was last year, so I should definitely nominate him. Or he you're might very, be... You're
0: very polite, car.
2: <laughs> but, but, you know, the flip side might be true. And they go, he's the best kid in year nine, but he's so far behind where Harrison was last year. I don't think he's right to nominate him. So, so schools tend to be all right. What they would get is the pressure from the club coaches using some of uh, Rusty's gamification. And it's like, well, if we've got two plus one as a club and we also have eight schools that provide kids to our club, let's get on the phone and make sure they nominate the right two kids from their school and then all of a sudden we've got 16 kids rock up in the same club jersey on a an assessment day um so i would kind of support clubs and some clubs do it really well i'm going to i'm going to definitely name check sandal and i'm going to definitely uh, name check your your mentor andy otley um who do this really well and and they would have their own kind of scoring system and they'd speak to the coaches in the age group above Cause they're the ones who've got the immediate experience of this journey and kind of like, we think he's got four out of five across the board for for the star model. What do you think? Could you come and have a look? And they might go, well actually compared to our our kid, yes, you're right. Um or actually, nah, you know, this lad didn't get in and we felt the same. But when we saw the assessment day, we understood why he was kind of benchmarked as a two instead of a four. Because ultimately you're a four in that environment and then you sort of move up and
0: I don't don't want to create any work for you. This is just sort of an idea that I was was just... After five years, I've decided to pick up uh, Alex Ferguson's book again because I started it, never finished it, like a lot of the books that I I generally read. But in the bit that I'd actually just been reading about, he's talking about the scouting system that they had at Manchester United and how he would very much encourage his scouts to look for not the best player in your street, but the best player in your town obviously we're not set up in rugby for that and we relied in terms of the contract it's all about the development pathway is there a, do you think there's a demand then for us for for each club to have somebody trained up in what they should kind of be looking for in these things to aid that process
2: yeah i mean crack I mean that that would be um that would be utopia i mean there'd be another sport played with a similar shape ball generally across the M62 corridor that would have A network of scouts which essentially means I mean it would be an upgrade to your hoodie right there you'd get a hoodie (laughs) with that uh, Super League club on board and and you would be a scout so they give you a 25 quid hoodie and you become a scout for them and uh, you know they'll they'll go along and they'll watch some rugby union games and rugby league games and then they basically bundle all these kids into into that system whereas and even that, I mean, Rugby League, for example, would be a slightly more early specialisation sport than Union because of some of the intricacies that are removed around contest for possession, um, around the restarts and stuff like that. So you essentially run past tackle kick is, is Rugby League in a nutshell. Sure. I'm doing a massive disservice and I'd really enjoy it as a sport. So please don't start storming my house or um, abusing me on social media. But, you know... We, our kind of potential long-term, you've got to view it differently because of those set pieces, because of the uh, rooks and mauls and, and contest possession. So you're right, and it's just there's, – there's probably two strings to it. You've got to find somebody who's probably willing and able to invest a fair bit of time into understanding talent, ID and development. Um, somebody who's pretty robust at having difficult conversations with those coaches to say, no, don't nominate that kid and that's going to cost you probably a pint over the bar on a, a Sunday lunchtime, if you, uh, if you upset them. Um, and they so add up. <laughs> in, in, a short answer is yes, it'd be perfect. The long answer is how much kind of time investment and return on, on that investment would we get? Um, and so, finding the right
0: person to be able to actually take that responsibility
2: Yes. Yeah. So we spoke a little bit, so here's here's a, a slightly different model. So Lorna, who we both know from the RFU, the head of game development, said rather than going through this nomination process, where like we spoke about before, it's just 250 kids throw a bucket of paint at a wall and see what sticks. Now in full well, you've missed some good ones, you've got some good ones and you've probably got some fairly average ones. You know, why don't we see them more in their environment? So use the kind of age grade calendar where these uh, under 14 localised festivals, tournaments and things are taking place. And you see them in their environment and you see which kids in their peer group are doing well. Um, rather than leaving it to chance that there's a really excellent teacher who understands physical development. There's a really good coaching coordinator at a club that's verifying and vetting people's nominations. So I, I mentioned two clubs, Sandler and Otley, and there's a you know, hundred more clubs running junior sections in Yorkshire.
1: I think I think that's, a, that's, a, that's an interesting point. And then when it, I think when, when it comes to recruitment, it's, it's and, and trying to pick players it's it's a time-consuming it, it is just in by nature a time-consuming um event you know i know that the, the work that i'm currently doing at the moment here at the you know the city of oxford college you know we're currently in a recruitment process for for the you know the 20 um 21 22 um season you know and we're constantly we spend most of the days on the phone speaking with clubs and and teachers hearing you know hearing this you know hearing about their players and you know, it, it, it you know, it's it time-consuming, and you know, I think finding that balance between between is is difficult. Um, how have you kind of, how, how have you kind of managed that time and and and, and prioritized, um, you know, what kind of things you're listening out for, and then well, as soon as you hear something or you've got something, it's almost like a box, a box ticked.
2: Yeah. So, again, you know, we sort of we tried some stuff and, and failed at some stuff. So we we used to have a, a kind of a nomination process where. So you guys are playing against each other and and Harrison would would nominate from Chris's team which one, two players stood out for him. And then that would get fed in centrally to either a generic Academy email or to the, the county office. And then if that player sort of came up maybe three times, you'd probably want to have a look. And if you'd done due diligence at your assessments, they'd probably be involved. But if not, it's a kind of well three different opposing coaches have nominated the same player from when they've seen him. So there's probably something in there to, to have a look. And that might be, going back to the star model, just because there's so much athletically ahead of their peer group. But you know what, let's work with him and, and see if we can develop the skills and the, the tactically aware stuff. Um, we did have, and, and Chris might remember these, but we used to have star cards, and we, we supported the, the community coaches from the RFU. So they were, essentially, it was like a Willy Wonka golden ticket And if they were in a school or a club and they saw somebody absolutely smashing out of the park, they they gave them one of these cards and that, I guess, got them entry to the nearest centre. So next Monday, there's a a session happening at Bishop Burton in East Yorkshire. Take this card with you and that will allow you to join the session. Um, And again, it comes back to the people who are ready and willing. So, you know, again, I'll name check people. So Evan uh, Woodworth, who's who's doing Masters at Beckett's now, was fantastic at it and he probably sent five or six from his area um you know of which they kind of all stayed in but that's one crc out of 15 or 16 across yorkshire and then the other ones might send one or actually it's a bit too much work and i just want to crunch the numbers and this is no disrespect because it's you know it was a bit of a treadmill doing that job you had to go from session to session to session do something in the evening don't forget your admin you've got to get your mileage in you know all that kind of stuff so i do get it but the ones that supported us you know we, we really saw some good gains from, from there so kids coming from schools that we would never see in a school's competition because they probably don't you know and this is the thing about competition you've got regulations so they don't have enough players to fulfill what's needed for that game so they can't play 15 a side at year 11 because out have 15 kids play rugby but if it was like a 10 side competition chuck them all in a minibus happy days it's game on so we weren't seeing you know a good number of kids and it was the same same schools week after week, month after month. So, yeah, we've not cracked it yet, but we you know, we are open to try and find different ways of, of expanding our network. So,
0: sort of moving that on then, Dika, what would your advice be for either coaches in the community game and school teachers who are starting up this process now of, of what they should be looking at within their sessions to support that development in play, more players than being eligible or getting through into the academy type process?
2: Yeah, so um, I remember having a conversation with another coach and he's, he's actually involved in the pathway. Um, but, you know, his his uh, take on it was, well, I'll coach the DPP curriculum to the younger ages to give them a head start. And it's, I'm kind of like, no, we, we don't want to take shortcuts. I and mean, It's a late specialisation sport for a reason. So particularly at those early ages, those formative years, probably invest your time in terms of CPD, invest your time around the who, so like Harrison mentioned before. So what does a 13-, or 14-year-old adolescent male need in terms of their physical and social development? And where's the best place to go to understand that? And, and let the rugby take care of itself. I mean, the one thing, certainly going back to my kind of coaching journey in my early years, trying to do too much in, in a session, is is fundamentally flawed. So you, you try and cram everything in, thinking, I'm giving them so much input, they're going to be so much better for this session. But as humans, we don't remember too many things. So if you've put six or seven things into a session and they remember one, and you've got 15 kids all remembering a different one, then you just knackered. That goes back,
0: that, that goes back to what uh, Harrison said earlier around um, start with the end in mind. So if you are running a block at work, where do you want them to be at the end of that six week? Yeah. 12 week block or, and then plan your
2: objectives for that week back from there yeah 100% and listen it is it is difficult like I referenced before they're all performance coaches so the, there has to be an element of fixing something that went wrong um, but that shouldn't be the sole focus like say you've got six weeks and I want to improve this principle of rugby so how many different ways can my group of players find to go forward so for the big physical athletic kid it's great given the ball he goes forward for the kid who, you know, is, is tiny but agile, they've got a different way of going forward. And how do I support them finding their best way? Um, but then it comes back to the stakeholder piece. You are a performance coach, but wouldn't it be helpful if you spoke to parents about what you're trying to achieve? Like, I get it. We conceded 60 tries. I get it. We need to do some work on tackling and defensive systems because uh, I've seen this thing with Stu Lancaster. Uh, so what we're going to do is a Lens to 13-2 defence. It's fine. We'll work on that. And then everything else goes out the window because you've got to fix that problem. Yes, you do. And I would definitely advocate doing little and often around contact confidence. So tackle technique stuff and, and some bits around that. But at the same time, you've got, you've got the rest of the lives with a 13, 14 year old kid. You want to make them love the game. So they keep playing it and not try and create, like I said before, the mini Owen Farrell at 14. Because he sends a wrong message. And then mums and dads, quite rightly sporting their kids, think he loves rugby, loves contact. So he's gonna go play some rugby league. Because that's what he loves. But that's like saying he loves a Big Mac. So he's gonna get a Big Mac for dinner every night. At some point they sort of burn out and go off it. I don't know it's it's a well-worn analogy, but we don't want the kids at 15, 16 not playing either code of rugby. I mean I I don't mind personally if a kid has a self-awareness at 16 and says you know what, I reckon I can smash Super League. And we've got two lads that we worked with a couple of years ago who are now doing that. That's fantastic. Because that's, with their self-awareness said, that's the best option for me right now, rather than stopping playing altogether. So yeah, there's loads of stuff in there, but that have a real good focus on what you're trying to achieve. If it's over a period, what that looks like. Engage with your stakeholders. So talk to mums and dads, talk to your local schools about what we're trying to do. And then most of all, Make the kids fun, engage with them. Like, what do they want out of a session? We don't often ask that. And, and you know what? We asked the kids for the first time on Monday night what they want to achieve in the session. That's the academy group. And we, all year long, we know best as adults. But what do they want to get out of it? And what was success to them? And uh, it's the best session of the year.
1: <laughs> so there's probably
2: something in that, right?
1: Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I think it's, you know, it's, you know, w- w- the main main aim of these three episodes is to really understand that who and I think that's you know that's just so so pivotal when it comes to um developing developing young athletes um I think they' I don't think we give i don't think us as adult coaches give them enough credit in terms of their their self awareness and, and and their perceptions and understanding of the game and actually I think you know balancing balancing their needs and their wants is you know is, is vital especially especially in that environment.
0: Yeah, it's the one thing that we need to, as coaches, have that confidence to actually go back to the players and, and ask what they want. And that's a great example that you've just said. Even the in the academy programme, you've tried that and it was one of the best sessions because the players have bought into it because they've been involved in shaping the goals. It's attractive to them. Um, they've got a level of attainment that they know they can do and they've got that motivation to be able to to come kick on from there. And I think, um, you
2: know, without t- trying to drag this out, you know, that is in itself part of the coaching skill. You can't just flick a switch and it starts to happen. It is on a continuum, but the the sort of the earlier you start that, then the players become much better at it. Like just, I guess, when when questioning became the big thing in coaching, you know, so rather than telling them what to do, you ask them questions. And a lot of people would ask closed questions. We've all been on those coach development courses, haven't we, where they ask a closed question. Was that good? Yes, brilliant, good. Let's move on, but I've asked a question. So developing the art of follow-up questions, which you've done really well on this uh, call, by the way, so kudos, Um, you know, kind of, the kids then start to learn, actually, what I want to do is play rugby. So if I give him the answer he wants to hear really quickly, we can get back to rugby. So the art of kind of wading through that and saying, hmm, so rather than giving me the answer, go show me the answer. So here's the question, here's the problem I'm giving you, go and show me what you think it looks like. Rather than saying, Oh yes, to execute an overlap, we need to square our hips, fix inside shoulder, and de- deliver a pass. It's like, right? There's a game with ten defenders against sixteen attackers, for example. So there's lots of space. Go and show me how you might exploit that space.
0: That, that's one thing, Steve McCall, one of the, the the lecturers at Beckett. Whenever I've watched him deliver a, a practical seminar, of the first thing he, he turns to students is, "Don't tell me, show me." Yeah. You know, he wants to he wants to be able to see it because that then also clarifies to you that you. Actually, they understood what I want them to do as well, rather than me just, you know, telling the technical elements. Can they actually show me?
2: Well, then it makes it individual because the questions you ask different players are based on what you see and them show you. If you ask a generic question on the best way to fix an overlap, well, like anybody could tell you it, but each player is individual. And the kids, and sometimes you know, we 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 take things away from kids too early. Like one of the kids, best way of fixing an overlap is using footwork and gassing and don't worry about those two people outside because my super strength is being absolute gas <laughs> whereas somebody else might be don't worry about the overlap because i'll carry these two kids over the line so that's a solution they've got right then and, and you then start to think about the questions you might ask those as individuals rather than just a generic how do we execute a 2v1 how do we fix the outside defender kind of thing
1: you no know, there's you know, there's some there's you know, some very interesting points there and um I think we've we, we've covered I think we've covered a fair bit, a fair bit in this in in this last hour. No, it's um yes, yeah, I think it's plenty of food for thought there. Um, and I think it's going to be benef- very beneficial for for a lot of a lot of coaches out there that um that are coaching this age grade and and how we can actually get the best out of them.
0: Uh, yeah, so uh, Dick, before we sort of go into a, a closing bit, um, we always end with the same three questions, uh, which Harrison's going to ask now. Um, which will be interesting to see what your are doing in it,
1: So, Harrison, let's, let's, let's see what you've got yeah. to say. Um, so, we're trying to create a theme here of, um, I'm going to give you three, three, three players. Um, you've got to make one of them captain of your team. You've got to bench one of them, and then you've got to rip up their contract, drop them, get rid of them um, completely. Um, and, of course, because it's the Yorkshire Rugby Academy, we're going to go with, with Yorkshire, Yorkshire legends. Um, so, the first one, we've got Danny Kerr, um, the second one, we've got Mike Tindall, who is the auctionman. And then finally, the 1997 Lions legend, uh, Mr. John Bentley. So which one are you dropping? Which one are you making captain? And which one are you benching?
0: Right then. Oof. You, did, you Bentos, did you play
2: with uh, Bentas? No, no. I, we just worked together. So when he sort of went back to Leeds Tax, it was then and sort of supported the community stuff. And that's a great question, by the way. Well done. It's uh, better than generic stuff. How much do you earn? What car do you drive? Um, I would go with, um, and, and trying to justify it, it's going to be difficult, but I'd probably make Mike Tyndall skipper because um, he would he'd probably display a lot of the star attributes pretty well. Um, te- technically, t- tactically underrated. I think a lot of people felt he was just a battering ram, but he had a bit of finesse about his game. And he was definitely resilient. Uh, judging by his honk, <laughs> um, but so he would he would be my captain, and I would I kind of back him to kind of drag a team through some fairly sticky situations. Um, in terms of benching, uh, I'd probably bench Bentos, and he would give some real impact off the bench because he'd be up and down the sidelines, warming up, getting stuck into the opposition, just like a, a Yorkshire two game. Back in the day, he'd be running up and down that touchline, probably helping the linesman and referee with some of their decision-making abilities, just to make sure they're on top of everything. So I think it'd be great to have around the squad, and then kind of wind him up and let him go with 15, 20 to go, and just see him cause chaos. <laughs> Which guess I mean, uh, you know, by deduction, probably the only academy graduate out of those three, Danny Kerr. What a time for your Wi Fi to go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we've lost him. Well, I think
1: Dicko should... and, uh, Chris. No, think... we, Dicko, we lost you. Your Wi-Fi stopped. We lost, stopped. We lost <laughs> you at Danny Kerr. <laughs> where, where
2: was I? Danny Kerr. Danny Kerr is in the office. Um and it's a difficult conversation, but uh you know, he's got he's got a good media career ahead of him. He's a good looking lad. He's had his barnet fixed, he's on um you know, he's on a podcast with a, a big cooperation. And listen, time moves on, um, and it's it's a tough conversation to have. And maybe get yourself to Japan or France and earn a load of money for the last couple of years.
1: Smart, oh, yeah, uh, it's great justifications there, I think, yeah, yeah. <laughs> struggle, struggle to disagree.
0: No, no, yeah, uh, what I would imagine. Just a shame you, we lost your Wi-Fi just at that point, there, Dicko. As well, we just had you frozen on screen. But uh, I bet and, all my kids'
2: days are just engaged in some online learning at the same time or something.
0: <laughs> it, just, it just froze. I just,
2: I thought you were just listening really intently. <laughs> I, I thought i just got you, but uh, maybe not. Um,
0: no, uh, Dicko. Just, just again, thank you, uh, thank you for coming on uh, onto the podcast. And, and I think we've gone through some some really good discussion there around. Understanding your players and how that could then link into to supporting the uh, the academy program. And I think it, it also reinforces a lot of the stuff that we spoke about on the previous two episodes as well. So, um, mm-hmm. so thank you for coming on. That's alright I um, hope you've enjoyed it. And got some out of it. We should look trying to get you on another episode to so maybe do a maybe we'll do a, when, when when lockdown ends. We'll try and do a pub episode and you can tell us some of the stories from your uh, from your rather and days. Like uh, um, Hollywood
2: Late Night Edition. Yeah. <laughs> If people listen, I'm I'm pretty keen that people reach out and if they listen to this and they're, they're intrigued about stuff, that just to get in touch with us, um, either through probably Twitter's the most kind of reliable platform for me. I'm not one for Facebook, and uh, I keep forgetting to take pictures for Instagram. So it's uh, Stuart Dixon13 on Twitter and uh, Yorks Rugby Acad. Um, so if people are keen and want to have a chat about stuff, then then reach out on there and I'd be more than happy to have a chat. As you've seen, I can talk pretty well.
1: Well, we'll um, yeah, we'll we'll um, we'll add you and and at you and tag you in everything that we do, so it'll be yeah. readily really, readily available through the description.
0: Rest so, uh, yeah, so thank you guys for listening. I uh, hope you've enjoyed the uh, the podcast. Um, please, uh, if you're watching on YouTube, please comment below with your thoughts. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to the channel, and we'll uh, we'll see you next time. Cheers for listening. Don't forget to join in the discussion at Big Breakdown HQ on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram.